0: This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. This is a special edition of the Christian Heritage London podcast. We recently had the privilege of being invited to participate in the unbelievable podcast and radio show on Premier Christian Radio, talking about William Tyndale with Melvin Bragg. You're
1: unbelievable. Well, welcome along to the show today. I'm Justin Briley and uh, delighted to be joined on the line today by Melvin Bragg and in studio by Ben Virgo. Uh, we're talking about William Tyndale on the show today and how his Bible will change the world, really. Uh, Melvin Bragg is well known as a UK broadcaster whose TV and radio shows are watched and listened to by millions. Now, while not a professing Christian himself, Melvin has long had a love of the Bible as a work of huge cultural and literary significance. And his new book, William Tyndale, A Very Brief History, tells the story of how almost 500 years ago, the reformer stirred up Britain with his revolutionary new translation of scripture. A translation which Melvin says has had just as much influence on English language and culture as someone like Shakespeare. Well, Ben Virgo is my other guest today of Christian Heritage London. Um, Ben regularly leads walking tours of London that bring alive the Christian history of Britain. He also hosts the Christian Heritage London podcast. Um, He's going to be engaging with Melvin today on on how Tyndale's faith led him to this single-minded pursuit of making the scriptures available in people's own language. A a calling, of course, that would eventually lead to Tyndale's own martyrdom in 1536. So, uh, Melvin and Ben, welcome along to the programme today. Great to have you with me. Thank you. Good to be here. Um, first of all, coming to you, Melvin, you're obviously someone well-known to many listeners uh, for the arts and culture programme you've produced for many years, the Southbank Show, and of course, uh, in our time on Radio 4 every week, a, a show not that dissimilar to unbelievable in some ways, but tell us about your love of the Bible, because that's essentially been around your, your whole life, hasn't it?
2: Yes, I was in the lives of millions of people over the last four or five hundred years. I was brought up as an Anglican, a strict Anglican, I joined the choir, I was pulled into the choir by my uncles when I was six and stayed and went to church three times on Sundays, choir practices through the week, uh, and uh, was part of church culture. There were and heard the Bible all those times, and every morning at school, at school assembly, there'd be extra- extracts from the Bible. So in terms of its language, I knew it. I was a devoted Christian. Uh, you could almost call me, in the sense, a fundamentalist. I believed in the resurrection. I believed in the miracles, and so on. And in my callow teens, I began to question it with a certain rationality. And uh, I still have great affection for what's good about it, and what's good about it is immense. Uh, the actual business of Final belief, I'm, I hover and quaver over, but uh, but I I call myself a what do I call myself a man who's I got Christian Christianity branded into me somewhere.
1: Mm. Well, it'd be interesting to to talk about that aspect of this story a little later on. But going to your own engagement with the Bible, obviously for for much of that engagement was the King James Version which we we obviously had that 400th anniversary not so long ago um, celebrating uh, 400 years but in a way Tyndale was the man behind much of what we read in our King James Version, wasn't he?
2: He was, absolutely. All these 50 or so scholars, I mean Tyndale is responsible for over 90% of the New Testament and for about 75% of the chapters in the Old Testament, the key chapters it turns out uh, books, or we should call them, that he himself translated. And I knew nothing but the King James Bible and the sonorities and amazing language of the King James Bible with its household words, its words that we use and phrases that we still use every day of the week was is still in my ears, is still in my mind, is still in everything that I write and the rhythms and so on. And you, In your introduction you quite rightly said uh, extremely influential. I would claim it was more influential than Shakespeare, frankly, I don't mean to be silly and competitive, <laughs> but uh, the Bible is a better selling worldwide than any of Shakespeare's plays are. And Shakespeare himself was influenced by Tyndall. Mm. That might sound odd in the dates, but the translations in, the, in this 15th, 16th century of the Bible were base, all based on Tyndall's translation, all ripped off from him, non-credited to him, and Shakespeare would have heard Tyndall's words again and again at school, and possibly at home, and in the church, and his, his Bible, as Rouse, the great scholar Rouse pointed out, is full of Tyndallisms.
1: We'll, we'll come to you for more of the detail on Tyndale's life in a moment, but just re- staying with the Bible and its its cultural influence, do, do you feel that we're losing that now in schools and you know our national heritage, if you like, that, that place that the Bible has had and, and obviously had in your life for many years?
2: I do. I wrote a book, as you mentioned, about the Bible at the 400th anniversary because I knew people were going to uh, dismiss it. And I just traced the influence of it, which is phenomenal around the world, but not only in Bible studies and in churches, but in all sorts of culture, in philanthropy, in in laws to alleviate the poor, uh, in every way you could think of. It's been extraordinary, and it's now lost, and I'm outraged by it. I just think it's a complete disgrace. It's another of the disappointments that one has with this country. You wouldn't think of knocking down all the cathedrals because not people go, because people don't go. But we have knocked down cathedrals of language Mm. that are unique in the world. That's what we've done. And they say it's difficult. It isn't difficult. Shakespeare's a bit difficult, and Shakespeare's ragingly popular in schools, in universities. In, it's just how you teach it, how you play it, how you distribute it. It's an executive decision made by some of these dumb executives, and some of them are in the Church of England, I'm afraid to say. <laughs> and it's the wrong decision. Why? And I think we should bring it back as a cultural force. They needn't believe if they don't want to believe, but as a cultural force, as something that holds this country together, and did so for a lot of years, and could still. And as a source of r- language and rhythm and culture itself this is massively important especially for young people and it really is I think it's a disgrace
1: well, well, we'll talk about maybe some of the possible solutions to that later on. Um, ben, welcome along to the programme as well. Thank you, it's great to have you on. Um, tell us a little bit about what you do with Christian Heritage London, because you're very often to be found pounding the streets of London, <laughs> uh, guiding pilgrims of one sort or another around some of the sites that you probably never knew
0: were, were on our doorstep. Yes, indeed. Well, uh, internationally, when people want to talk about how the gospel has changed the world, they start talking about London. They start talking about Wilberforce and Whitfield and Wesley and... Tyndale, Elizabeth Fry and uh, Lord Shaftesbury and characters like this. This is a city where the gospel has done awesome things and Christianity has blessed a people. And uh, Jesus Christ fascinatingly said the kingdom of God comes like this. A woman took (laughs) yeast and put it into the flour until the whole dough was leavened. And there have been leavenings in this city. And what we do is we take people on walks through this history. It just so happens that in the square mile, the city of London, you can walk through history relating to each of those men I've mentioned, as well as Spurgeon and uh, Thomas Cranmer and many others. And as we go, we tell their stories. And it's a, it's a funny thing hearing uh, Melvin there talking of uh, uh, cathedrals and comparing them with the Bible. Um, you might be interested to hear, Melvin, that we, uh, when we stand outside Guildhall on our walk, I have everyone look up at that old building and I say, look at that building, that old building with stained glass and turrets and a great vaulted roof. That is not and has never been a church. (laughs) Uh, There is nothing in the Bible that says stained glass. That's what I really want. (laughs) (laughs) I had a friend who was a minister of a church and uh, when he uh, he he had a funeral in his church building and when the undertakers carried in the uh, the coffin, they put it down and then they turned to bow to the altar and my friend didn't have an altar in his church so they bowed to the overhead projector <laughs> and you get this extraordinary reverence for physical items wherein the language the concepts the centrality of this gospel is what has changed this nation much more than buildings
1: so so in a sense your your mission i suppose is to to take the physical things that people often the, is, initiate their interest and to say, well, well, here's the spiritual reality that it was behind it or it was pointing to.
0: Yes, we'd love to, because sadly, and I think uh, Melvin would uh, agree with this as well, uh, there have been generations who have been inspired by Wilberforce and Wesley and Whitfield and Elizabeth Fry and many others, and these generations, people don't even remember them, don't even know of them. If you go down that street in the centre of the West End that was put was named After a man who they said, no one should ever forget this man, Lord Shaftesbury. (laughs) Everyone just thinks of it as the theatre district. And uh, we love to tell the stories of these people in the locations where they made history. And thus point them to the story that motivated them.
1: Well, we're going to be going into the story of one well-known character, of course, uh, William Tyndale, on today's show. This is Unbelievable, the programme that brings Christians and non-Christians together for dialogue and debate. So very pleased to be joined on the line today by Melvin Bragg. Ben Virgo is with me in studio as we talk about how William Tyndale's Bible changed the world. If you want to get in touch with today's show, uh, do feel free to email your thoughts, unbelievable at uk. Get in touch via social media as well, at unbelievablejb for the Twitter Facebook.com slash Unbelievable JB for the Facebook page and all of those links and links, of course, to Melvin's book and Ben's uh, Christian Heritage London available from the show today at premierchristianradio.com forward slash unbelievable. Unbelievable with Justin Briley. Well, let's come to you again, Melvin, uh, just to, to get a little bit of a sense of uh, who William Tyndale was and just why his project of translating scripture into English was so controversial at the time. I mean, holding an English translation Bible in our hands is, is very unremarkable today, but it, it certainly wasn't 500 years ago. So tell us about him.
2: Well, he was born in about 1494 to a wealthy enough family in the, in the West Country, He went to Magdalen College School when he was uh, 12. And by the time he was 18, he'd got an M.A. He was an extraordinary scholar. Uh, and in the end, uh, new ended up knowing nine languages well, including Greek and Latin, of course, and Hebrew and French and Spanish and so on. A great linguist, one of, the, one of the greatest translators there's ever been. The curious thing about him, and I can use the word curious, or the unique thing about him, is that we think we know, but we, we know that from an early age, from the time he was a boy, and he read about the Bible being ins- inspirational to Alfred the Great, and the Bible being in English, or parts of it being in English at the time Alfred the Great, he was determined to turn the Bible into English. He was very much a local boy in some ways. He used dialect stories from, from his part of the world in the West Country, uh, and he loved the English language. He loved the Germanic roots of it. He studied all that, and he wanted the Bible to be in English, and he didn't see why it shouldn't be. It was in most other the European countries at that time, the end of the 15th century, beginning of the 16th century, in the language of the country, again and again, Spain, uh, Germany, had several <coughs> several different copies and so on. We had resisted it. This country, England, had resisted. It was in the nature of a sacred book, must not be touched like the Quran. Latin was the sacred language. God spoke in Latin, that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, and he was determined to attack this, and he started it quite early. Uh, and from then on, he was in terrible trouble because, it, in the uh, because if if you quoted the scriptures in English, if you translate them into English, you were against the law. People were persecuted; they were burned. They were tortured. Wycliffe's Bible, which was in English, had been about a century before. That was taken around by brave young men to different parts of the country. Brave young men, mainly from Oxford University. If they were caught, they were tortured. In a place like the Lollard Tower, they were tortured. The Lollard Tower, of course, is at the Lambeth Palace of the present Archbishop of Canterbury, and of mm-hmm. all Archbishop of Canterbury. You go and see it. It's a torture chamber. Uh, and he took it on. And what he did eventually, it's a long story, he couldn't get going in London, nobody would subsidize him or help him, he went to Germany. He continued his translation, he got it printed in Germany, uh, he was subsidized by some of his family in the wool trade. It was, the wool trade played a big part in protecting him across Europe. We were the great exponents of the wool trade. The English wool trade was the staple of our economic, uh, economic viability. And he got it translated, uh, he was interrupted anyway, one way or another, he smuggled it into England uh, and it became an instant bestseller and As soon as they realized that, they burnt it, they burnt the books, they tried to intercept them at ports, they set spies on him until the rest of his life. He went across when he was about twenty eight to Europe He was never ever to return to England. He was spied on by three different spy systems the the Pope the Holy Roman Emperor system and the system in Britain, the system set up uh, by by the Tudors. And he was moving around. I mean, he was talked of and he was a frail man, a dedicated scholar, a fantastic scholar, pure, everybody said, pure minded and so on. But he acted occasionally, (coughs) a bit like James Bond, and I don't be silly here. (laughs) When he knew that they were coming to get him at One Printing Works, within half a day, he cleared all his manuscripts, put them all together, he fled to the river, he got on a boat and he escaped. Uh, and it was, a, when you look at, the, look at the geography, it was a very daring and bold thing to do and almost impossible to see how he got away from them. Yes. And we can talk to you about the end of his life later if you want, but constantly he was translating. And constantly he was pining to be back in England, and constantly he was urging the English to translate the book into the language of the people. Mm. That's what he wanted early in, that's my last thing, early in his life, that is when he was about 21, 22, when he was a tutor in the West Country, notorious for his controversial views, which were, that the Bible should be in English, and he preached on College Green in Bristol, and so on, and he was a marked man. At one dinner event, a bishop said, if I were to choose between the works of the Pope and the words of the, words of the Popes and the words of God, I would have the words of the Pope. And it's well reported by two people there that Tyndall was incandescent, this boy, this young man Tyndall, uh, and said, "Ere long." I will teach a plowboy to know the Bible better than thee. Mm. And that is a tremendous remark because by using the word plowboy, he was talking about illiterate people. Mm. And that, that yes. governed his translation. It is a translation to be read aloud. Mm. And it's been read aloud ever yes. since. And also a plowboy intimated Christ's apostle, somebody who worked the earth, a mm. humble person.
1: Mm. And
2: he followed that. He followed that plus his love of learning for the rest of his life.
1: I'll get you to talk about the St. Paul's incident in a moment, um, Ben, because obviously that, that is part of some of the tours that you do. But but what I think was most surprising to me in reading your book, Melvin, was that people are probably unaware, as I was, just how low the level of understanding and literacy of scripture was, not just among the lay people, but among the clergy mm. as well. Um, do you want to describe the kind of environment into which William Tyndale was, was trying to translate these scriptures?
2: It was utterly corrupt. I must mention Luther. Luther had come in 1517, of course, and was a great influence on Tyndall, as it was on many people who were against the corruptions of the church. The corruptions of the church were extraordinary. I don't have my book in front of me, but in one parish alone, uh, uh, let us say—and I'm near enough, right? Let us say, uh, uh, fifty priests. About forty of them couldn't do the Lord's prayer. Mm. They didn't know who. They didn't know. Uh, they didn't know the Ten Commandments. Mm. They never turned up. It was a, just a place to go and have a job, really, and yes. get away with as much as you could. Yes. The ignorance uh, and the misunderstanding and the mumbling and the not taking was vast. And it, people, educated people, knew that and they were in despair about it. Mm-hmm. But they didn't know what to do because the church was probably the biggest employer in the country, one way or another, and it was corrupt. And it was ignorant, except for a few brilliant people at the top. And there it was, you couldn't move it. And the way that Tyndall moved it was by putting this bomb underneath its central, the thing that held it together, which was the sacred received Bible, translated in 381. Mm-hmm. That was the Latin Bible. And he put a bomb under that. But it, the ignorance is, is alarming.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, you you did a major project on the Reformation a couple of years ago, obviously, uh, the uh, 2017 uh, 500th anniversary, Ben. Mm. Um, I I suppose Tyndale is just one part of a much bigger picture in that sense of people putting the scriptures back at the center Mm. of Christian Mm. faith in what a in many ways, you know, become a, a very, uh, if if you like, corrupted tradition mm. in many parts of, of Europe.
0: Absolutely. And and Tyndale, being a brilliant linguist, he had access, he had read the scriptures, and he had seen this gospel which Luther was trumpeting in Germany. He has this magnificent passage where he uses the Greek word euangelion, uh, which um, all it's wonderful the way it's put together. Eu is sort of well or good, and angel, you know, we, we use the word angel, it means messenger, and this is the good message, and he says, euangelion, that we call the gospel, is a Greek word, and signifieth good, merry, glad, and joyful tidings, that taketh a man's heart, and maketh his heart glad, and maketh him sing, dance, and leap for joy. Now Tyndale uh, the the most fascinating literary figures, of course, have exalted in uh, their, their Wordsworthy and Romanticism and so on. But Tyndale had understood a message. He had understood something that had happened. And it was that that Luther had helped to crystallize in the minds of a generation. And, of course, ever since in the minds of many. Because at that time, of course, in 1517, you have, uh, well, in London, you've got a population of about 40,000, perhaps. Uh, if you have three children you would expect to keep two. Um, there's no anaesthetic. Uh, you get your water from where you get rid of your waste. And uh, life was gritty in London. And you'd go to church, not because you wanted to hear the preaching. The preaching was uh, often done by someone who didn't believe it at all, as Mel is <laughs> describing there, <laughs> let alone understand it. And the Bibles were only available in Latin, apart from a few um, somewhat crabby um, Wycliffe copies hanging around. And um, uh, And it was into that world, of course, that Luther brought this awesome clarity that the holy, just God does not just say, I'm, I cannot wait to hit you. But he comes and says, I've come to take the punishment for you. I've come to save. I've come to I've come to die, to take the punishment, to save sinners. And that was the message which uh, which thrilled you know. And of course, he was very effective on a one to one level evangelistically if you remember uh, Melvin one of the the patrons he worked with was converted as was as were the children i believe in fact i believe it is said that the the jailer where he was he was jailed in belgium uh, was converted, as was his daughter.
1: It sounds like something from the book of Acts and Paul, doesn't yes, it? But, yes,
0: Escaping in a basket. <laughs> but yes, he was, it, was the, it was that extraordinary gospel at the heart of Luther's uh, Reformation, which uh, was picked up here. And as, as Melvin wisely and I think helpfully puts in, in his book, that it, it began to dawn on Wolsey and the others that Tinder was more dangerous than Luther because he was one of their own. He was a British yeah. man who was saying the things that this terrifying German monk was saying. But he was saying it in English. And that, what, who knew what
1: would happen there? Uh, and that, that is a phrase that, that came to stick, the most dangerous man in, in all England, wasn't it, Melvin? Mm. He, he really was considered yeah. dangerous. But d- 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 help us to understand again why why the simple act of translating the scriptures into English could be so inflammatory in, in that day and age.
2: Because language is dangerous.
1: Hmm.
2: Language can be incendiary. Language starts revolutions and takes them through. And Tyndall's use of language was deliberate and brilliant. It's been touched on by Ben. But he his, his translation, if I can talk for a minute, he just turned it on its head. He destroyed the church mm. by the way he translated it. There were no bishops in his translation of the Bible. There was el- an elder, it was the word, for priest. He put love in rather than charity. Uh, The Greek word ecclesia, which was supposed to be the church, he translated it as congregation. Mm. In other words, the buildings, the whole apparatus of the church who saw was not important. It was not, it did not matter. What mattered was one man's relationship with God, as as Ben has alluded to. One man's faith, by faith. And he said that in words. And he also... It embellished the English language in ways which and which infuriated people because he gave people phrases to speak which they tracked back to the Bible. Mm-hmm. My brother's keeper, knock and it shall be open, a moment in time, seek and he shall find, ask and it shall be given you, mm-hmm. let there be light, the powers that be, the sign of the times, fifth of Luca, on and on and on. These translations often taken from sayings from his own part of the world, stuck in people's minds and these words they could go around with, they could talk about, and for the first time ever, and we have evidence of people in ch- staying behind in churches to, w- when it came out to read the Bible to each other, they knew what was being said. It was not screened from them. They were not, mm. they were not deputed to be unworthy to receive the words of God. They knew the words of God, mm. so they could because it was in English. They could argue about things in the Bible. Was this person right? Was that person right? Mm. They could take it into themselves, Mm. and they took it into themselves at a time when there were so very few books, and this was the greatest book of that time, and for centuries afterwards, they took it into themselves and lived off it, and it nourished them, and
1: that was his great achievement. Mm. Then the two
2: empires, of course, took it around the world, the British Empire and then the American Empire.
1: Absolutely, and in that sense, as part of that wider Reformation movement, um, it could both be seen as, as the beginning Beginning, in a sense, of the Protestant Reformation, obviously, and and all that that brought with it, but also, in a sense, the destabilizing of the the, the power base of the Catholic Church at that point, and and this put him into obviously not only was he not um, not in the good books of the King of England at the time, the Pope as well, obviously, was not pleased with the kind of uh, part he was playing in in this Reformation. So so he had enemies on both sides in that way, didn't he?
2: Yes, like Luther, but you. You have these the the Pope being shocked by what Luther said. Started a a, a, words Luther's words started a revolution in Germany soon after they were out, which thirty thousand people were killed because of what he'd said. You know, in in his translation of the Bible, and in when you get Tyndall in England, the 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 books are taken, the 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 whole consignment of six thousand copies of the New Testament, which came across London, were confiscated and they were burnt over two or three days mm. outside the old St. Paul's. Mm. That was really, Tyndall saw that as, as something on his side because he knew that people could not bear the idea of their Bible being burnt and he was right. That act of vandalism actually helped the Protestant cause in London because it was only in a certain areas that it was going on at the time, very much indeed. And then the book took off and then he took off in other editions right through the century. And not the tragedy because he wouldn't put his name to it. It This was God's word, not his. But then you get the St. James Bible, all this business about 50 of the time scholars and they were fine scholars and they did a few amendments and there were a few amendments and Eliot defends them very well but there were only a few amendments and actually some of them I don't think are as good as the original <laughs> but I argue that in my short book um, but, uh, but, but he, he did it's, it's really important to remember I'm sure you I don't have to tell you to, but uh, I have to tell myself, really, <laughs> that words change things. I mean, by words, we define what we are. Mm. You look at the great revolutions of Mao, you look at the revolutions of Stalin, it's the words, it's what they say. Orwell got that in Animal Farm, you know, four legs good, two legs better. And just those simple words, you think, ah, well, they think mm. things have changed. Mm. And he was, Tyndall supplied the language, not only of speech about Christianity, but the language of argument, the language of being able to tackle somebody greater than yourself. And, of course, all the great philosophers that are in the Bible, mm. blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor, and so on. These were at last understood by the population, by more, more of those 40,000 that Ben was talking about, rather than about, what, 400?
1: Mm, Brilliant stuff we're going to go to a quick break and we'll be back Uh, you've got a little more time with us uh, Melvin to talk about William Tyndale his influence and I I want us to turn to you know the wider issues that that his story raises and, and where we are now in our culture when it comes to our understanding and our heritage and that sort of thing but today on unbelievable we're asking how did William Tyndale's Bible change the world my guests are Melvin Bragg and Ben Virgo and we'll be back in a moment. Questions. We face great challenges in our day. Fake news, skepticism, disbelief. Friends, join the revolution. Speak truth to a post-truth world. Do you want to share your Christian faith with confidence? Do you want to speak truth in a post-truth world? If so, don't miss Unbelievable the Conference 2019 in partnership with ADF International and Biola Apologetics. Join me, Justin Briley, and over 10 world-class speakers, including J.P. Morland, Krish Kandaya, Christy Mayer, and Bruxy Cavey. Rediscover the reasons for the hope you have and find the confidence to share it boldly. Unbelievable, the conference 2019. Saturday, the 20th of July in London. Book your early bird tickets now at premierchristianradio.com forward slash speaking truth. You're listening to Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to this week's edition of the show. I'm Justin Briley. This is the program that gets Christians and non-Christians talking to each other. Not just a radio show, it's also a podcast. It's also an app as well. If you haven't downloaded the app, well, what are you doing with your life? Uh, go and get hold of it wherever you get your apps from and you'll be updated with the latest shows, videos, articles, resources and so on. In fact, we just added some new video debates uh, over at the app. Uh, those are some of the shows we recorded with Cosmic Skeptic, a well-known atheist YouTuber alongside people like Frank Turek and Josh Perik. So you'll be able to watch those on the app if you download the app. It's also available from our YouTube channel, which you can subscribe to. The newsletter keeps you updated as well if you want to find out more about what goes on in the show some of the links that I send you uh, every fortnight uh, then do subscribe to that all of the links available from the show page at premierchristianradio.com forward slash unbelievable and my guests today on the show are Melvin Bragg and Ben Virgo We've been having a wonderful time talking about the history of William Tyndale, uh, which is is an action packed one. If you read um, the very short, the very brief history of William Tyndale in Melvin Bragg's new book, you'll 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 find a tale of someone who was evidently a brilliant thinker, linguist, uh, someone who wasn't afraid to take his own life in his hands, though, when it came to carrying out this mission to put the Bible in the English language into the hands of ordinary people. Uh, ben Virgo of Christian Heritage London is also joining us to talk through this. Um, ben your, your walking tours include St Paul's Cathedral and mm. in that last section Melvin mentioned the fact that there was this, this sort of large ceremonial burning mm. of all these English language mm. Bibles of Tyndale's which mm. In today's context, it seems bizarre, you know, the church burning Bibles. That's mm. the sort of thing that people who want to make a sacrilegious point do. But, yes. but at the time, it, it was felt that this needed to be done, obviously. Yes.
0: Well, the shock for Tyndale had been this. He had been telling people this gospel. He'd been telling people on a one-to-one basis. And all Christians know what happens next. When you put your faith in Christ, when you find he is enough for me and uh, he has done the work, that was needed. My my sin has been dealt with by him. Well, immediately, all Christians know, what happens then is the devil comes along and says, so, uh, so you're, you're saved by faith, are you? And the, the new Christian says, yes, just by faith. Says, so not your works. And the new Christian says, no, no, not my works, entirely Jesus' works. And then, of course, he says, so, um, well, you can do what you like now then, can't you? And the new Christian uh, says, well, I can't just do what I like. And he says, well done. Let me give you some extra rules. Let me give you some extra bits. Let's add some things to Christ. Now, anyone who has read the New Testament knows adding things to Christ is something which makes Paul, the apostle Paul, more angry than anything. He says, you foolish Galatians, how can you add things to Christ? That is where everything goes wrong. But without a Bible... You're in trouble. You, you're not going to guess Romans. You're not going to guess <laughs> the Gospels. You need the Bible. And so Tyndale, as um, Melvin was saying, this, this was nourishment. This had nourished his soul. And so when he escapes to Antwerp and uh, to Hamburg and translates the, uh, the New Testament and has it sent over, he, it must have been a sense of uh, like a, a crescendo. He had reached the top of the mountain. It's out there. My life's work is done. And then they make it to Britain, are captured are brought to Paul's Cross at St. Paul's Cathedral. And there, while the crowds cheered, they were burned. Um, It was... uh it's an extraordinary place to stand and say, this is where we burned the first New Testaments in English. Because that's what we do, isn't
1: it? And in some ways was, was a sort of dark omen, I suppose, of what his own fate would be. He was obviously strangled mm. and burned himself yes, as, as a martyr, along with many others who, of, of those, you know, that tradition. Um, so, so in a sense, that was the, the way um, dissent was dealt with in those days, Melvin, yeah. wasn't it? People got burned or books got burned, depending on, on what you disagree with. Great.
2: Yes, in all ways. But I mentioned Wycliffe before. Wycliffe made the first full translation of the Bible into English in about 1381. It was he was sustained for a year or two because he had immense connections at court, and then he was given a show trial. Uh, and a few years later the book was banned but it was in the hands of these young people as i said before who were were absolutely amazed and stunned by the beauty of the language not of the language beauty of the fact that it was in english and so for the next hundred years it was taken around the country but these law lads were pursued persecuted you were not allowed to have the bible in your possession Tin, um, um, um Wycliffe's bible you're not allowed to read it be seen reading it and when we come to Tyndall his, his, his bravery was extraordinary because mm. the pe- not only were books burned in London, first you burn the books and then you burn the people. Yes. Mm. Because after they'd had that book burning, so graphically described there by Ben, what well you have, anybody who owned a Tyndall translation, anybody who'd known William Tyndall, anybody who spoke of William Tyndall, London was full of spies. It was an extraordinary place under Henry These people were burned. Mm. Again and again, we had public burnings at Smithfield of people who just knew Tyndall, had read the Bible, swore by Tyndall, and so on and so forth. This went on until Henry VIII decided that we were a Protestant country (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, and commanded that the Bible in English should be in every church, and the Bible in English was Mm -hmm. in every church, and the Bible in English was was that which was massively translated by Tyndall, but to use a colloquialism, ripped off by people who'd worked with him a little bit or Mm -hmm. people who just thought it was the easiest way through, the Matthew Bible, the Coverdale Bible, the Mm -hmm. Great Bible, on it went right up to the King James Bible. Uh, But this force of language... Uh, as we 've been saying uh, transformed society mm. it's it 's difficult to under us, and one of the things about Tyndall's translation is his wonderful gift for, as I said a few phrases before, his wonderful gift for rhythm, blessed are the meek, for they mm. shall inherit it, da-da-da-da-da. A lot of our rhythms in our poetry are based on that. And so that, that that's one of the strange, powerful things about it. But another is, he drew on three great, because he did several translations of the New Testament, but three of the great cultural traditions in the world. He drew on the Hebrew. He taught himself Hebrew, Mm -hmm. one of the first people. So he drew on the Hebrew translations of the Old Testament. He drew on the Greek, and the Bible, as as we knew, was first translated into Greek before it was translated. He drew on Latin, of course, but then he drew on English. He knew Old English. He loved the compatibility of Hebrew words and Old English words, Germanic English words. He drew on all those languages, so you get inside that Inside that that text, all these languages, the one thing above all, he wrote short sentences. The idea of a short, brief sentence Mm. was initiated, and Shakespeare uses it all the time. The the killer sentence is always the short sentence Mm. in Shakespeare. That was a mark of our strongest literature from then on, and he developed it. And again, we go back to the Ploughboy. He wanted the ploughboy to understand it. He wanted illiterate people to be as cognizant of the Bible as the most literate people. And once they knew it, they would know it, as he he said, better than the bishops and challenge them. And then we have the whole Presbyterian movement, the nonconformist movement, and so on. And a great new breath of cultural diversity growing up from that.
1: And I believe that his dying prayer at the stake was something along the lines of, Lord, open the eyes of the king. And in a sense, it could be argued that prayer was answered when, when Henry did, obviously eventually make the, the English Bible available.
2: Yes, I've got no time for Henry. I think he's a vandal, <laughs> yes. But he did say, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. He always respected the king because the king was in the Bible. Mm. <laughs> he didn't respect the Pope. There were no <laughs> popes in the Bible, no bishop. <laughs> but he did respect the king. And he yes. thought the king was mistaken. He thought the king was misled. He thought the king was misinformed. But he respected the king and he thought if God opened the king of England's eyes, all would be well. There was a, in it, There was a powerful innocence about him. He truly thought... That, that if, 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 if he truly thought that once he translated the Bible in English language, and once English people, had, English people had read it in their own language, all would be well. Why should there be any problem? They got the answer to what was the biggest fact of their life, which was God. and uh, They got the answer to where they might go next, which was heaven if they behaved well. They got the answer to all the problems in their life. Do not do this. To, it was all there. That, so everything was solved. Mm. He absolutely believed that. He was puzzled that it didn't just happen like
1: that. it would be interested to, to, to get your take on this as someone who leads walking tours around, around London, Ben. Mm. Um, and many of the sites, I'm sure, are places where people were um, killed for their faith, martyred, mm. um, sites where, you know, books were burned and so on. And I can imagine the average sceptic looking at that, and we have many sceptics who come on this show as you know, um, people who are far less, if you like, um, sympathetic towards Christian faith than Melvin is, um, who would say well there's an example you know for all the good the religion might do it inevitably leads towards violence and repression mm. and you know uh, the, the, the narrowing of thought and so on mm. and they would obviously you know point to many examples in the modern day world of that mm. as well mm. so, so what's your response to that when you look at the turmoil mm. that these sort of things came out of the, the fact that there were people on both sides doing terrible things to each other mm. where, where, where do you go with that I suppose as a Christian who believes that somehow God was acting nevertheless through all of it
0: Yes, I, I wouldn't disagree with the idea that religion causes strife. <laughs> because interestingly, Jesus doesn't come to bring religion. The people who liked Jesus were the, uh, as famously were the uh, the outcasts, the people, the, the tax collectors, the, the women, the sinful women Jesus was friendly with. It was the people who were the religious, who thought they could manage without him, who he had the, the arguments with and the fights with. And so there's nothing new in this, you always find the people at the cutting edge of serving this gospel who um, bear the brunt. But also, you find they are the people who people start to trust because they are the ones who say, "I don't love my life even unto death." <laughs> so, if you look at Rodney Stark's great book, he's a sociologist, not even a, he wasn't even a Christian, but he looked at how how is it that these twelve men changed the world? And he starts uh, digging into the history and looking at the sources and finding that when there was plague, it was the Christians who, who served and died serving. And you find it was the people in the grassroots. It's it's fascinating that um, interestingly, the, the day after um, uh, the New Testaments of Tyndale were burned in um, uh, the 15, tw- 15 t- I believe. No, 1526, they were burned on the 25th, 26th, 27th of October. It was on the 28th of October 1787, 261 years later that Wilberforce felt that God Almighty had placed before him two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. Now here's a man, Wilberforce is a man who the world says this was a great, great man, but not because of the fortune he made, but because he set people free in the grassroots. And you always find the uh, the most vital expressions of Christianity are not these edifices, the great buildings, they are like people serving the grassroots, people serving the uh, those who have nothing, and those are the people who who win, who, who win our attention and win our inspiration. They're the people you name your children after because uh, they say, "I've seen something which is worth living and dying for." helps people to trust them. And that's Mm. why we remember this man, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Melvin, I'd be interested in exploring, sort of in terms of your own personal appreciation, we've heard that obviously in, in so many ways on today's show of the Bible and... The p- part it's played in culture and language, and Tyndale obviously at the forefront of that in in what he did and developed. Um, obviously, you know Tyndale and those who did it were were not doing it simply because they wanted to create great literature and and cultural achievements and so on, but they genuinely believed in the message at the centre of this and the person Jesus Christ that that they believed all of these scriptures pointed to. Where have you come down in your own personal engagement with that? Do you do you have you ever sort of found that a, an interesting or attractive kind of figure, Jesus Christ at the centre of all of this?
2: Oh yes, Christ is an extremely attractive figure, without any question. Christ is the mm. is the one of the most attractive and one of the most revolutionary and one of the most benignly revolutionary men who's ever lived. And we seem to know quite a bit about him. That's mm. that's pretty that's reasonably authoritative. Mm. Yes, uh, there's no problem there. The problem is what what surrounds him. The problem is the resurrection and uh, the the, uh, the soul and the transference to heaven. Those are the problems people including me have. It doesn't take away from having a, a very powerful residual uh, interest in and conviction about a lot of the things that Christianity stood for. And Ben's absolutely right in that, that again and again it's the Christians who are um, leading the idea of teaching, uh, taking the Bible and taking teaching to the poor, observing the poor in the East End of London, for instance. Uh, the, the Christians are, be, are moved in the 19th century, Christians to build great uh, museums and libraries, the rich the rich so that the poor can have it, looking after the poor, empowering the poor. It's a massive Christian notion, and it isn't, doesn't figure in, in, in many other religions. It's the, the poor the shall inherit the earth. That is a very powerful thing. Mm. Also the richness that Christianity bought because of, uh, brought because of its extraordinary flexibility. I mean, you have this religion mm. which is also the greatest patron of the arts that we've seen in, in Europe for centuries, maybe ever, in every sort of art. You mentioned stained glass, but there's, <laughs> there's stone, there's paintings, there's singing, on and on it goes. Mm. Mm. Philosophy, development, philosophy, and so, and so it goes. So you, can't, you can't shift all that away, you can say of course that there's a bad side to it, there's a the bad the burning of people of course, mm-hmm. that's terrible the Inquisition, the Spanish Inquisition mm-hmm. uh, they're terrible, And on it goes the abuse that we now see nowadays must have gone along, that's terrible mm-hmm. and on it, the bad side is there but the, the Christianity has always come as Ben pointed out, has always come alongside, as soon as Christianity has been there the devil has popped up in <laughs> one form or another called the devil and not called the devil mm-hmm. to attempt to rival it or destroy or to rule in a different place like Lucifer who was better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven Mm. and the people wanted to rule in darkness and they did.
1: Mm. Uh, and I just I mean you've obviously met so many people of of religious traditions over the years of your broadcasting career Melvin has any of those engagements with them sort of brought you any closer to kind of considering I suppose those those big claims the miracle claims I know you're a you're a man of science as much as you are of uh, culture and religion and so on is is that the sticking point for you the 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 miraculous nature of, of what ultimately is the heart of the Christian story
2: Well, yes, it is the sticking point, but I don't think it's the heart of the Christian story, actually.
1: Interesting. Um, Tell me why. I
2: don't think it is, no. I think the heart of the Christian story is, if you want a heart, uh, the teachings of Jesus Christ. I don't think the heart of the Christian story is the resurrection. That's the heart of the Christian appeal in some areas. Uh, I don't think the heart of a Christian story is that a soul will go into heaven if you behave well enough here on earth. That's the the heart of a lot of stories of different religions, the Jewish religion, for instance, and so on. Um so no, that isn't to me the heart of it. The heart of it is the is the the emanation of goodness that came from a person like Christ and his followers and has been pursued by so many people since
1: well it'd be interesting in your response to that Ben just just in as much as um for for melvin obviously it's it's the message it's the teachings it's those things that have shaped our culture as well in so many ways um Why for you? I suppose I'm, I'm guessing the heart of it is actually there in in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, more uh, even more than perhaps his his teachings as as important as they have been.
0: Yes, indeed. Well, it's the it's what makes Tyndale's heart sing for joy is this evangelion that we call gospel, the merry, glad, joyful tidings that taketh a man's heart glad and maketh him sing and dance and leap for joy. I don't sing and leap for joy when I'm told. <laughs> What to do necessarily? I get, I get told. I, what makes me sing for joy is being told he loved me and gave himself for me. He took the punishment. He did it, uh, and it was sufficient. It worked. He rose, and that's uh, that's at the heart of the message. Which, uh, which, which, uh, interestingly, all these, all these characters, um, all these great heroes. Uh, treasured. They, they they gloried in the cross. They gloried, gloried in the uh, resurrection of Jesus. And these things, if you look at what Jesus' is teaching points to, he frequently will uh, say extraordinary claims. We're trying to actually, it's funny you mention East London and the poor, Melvin, actually planting a church presently in East London. And uh, and one of the, we're surrounded by Muslims. It's interesting, they, they're convinced that uh, Jesus was a prophet. But uh, strikingly, they don't like to read what he actually said because everything he points to, is, he keeps saying, I'm God. I'm God. I'm God. <laughs> he keeps saying, you know, uh, I am the father, R one and so on. And someone who was teaching that kind of thing and uh, and um, was a teacher would be quickly written off. But here's a man who makes these extraordinary claims. And then he says, and this is what I've come to do. I've come to save. I've come to seek and save the lost. So, yeah, I, I, my my proposal would be in the middle of it all. Um, and you speak movingly in the foreword of your book um, of how uh, reaching the last lap of life, considering the uh, the story of Jesus, the heart of it is this: uh, is that he it doesn't make sense without what he's done. It doesn't make sense without what he's done. And I accept. Yes, the church has been bad. The church has been bad to me. But uh, in the middle of it all, what encourages me is every morning I come to a saviour who says. I loved you and gave myself for you. It's uh, that—that's the heart of the thing that I encourage. You're being evangelized here, Melvin. Uh, <laughs> um, so just, uh, just
1: um, um, attentively. Well,
0: well, I mean,
2: for a man who for a man who doesn't like sermons, he gives quite good sermons. <laughs> your band doesn't he? <laughs>
1: Well, I, I mean, I, I suppose you know th- this is where the rubber hits the road. In the end of the day, um, it, we we're all on the same page when it comes to the the incredibly important um, value of what Tyndale did, what the Bible has done, what Christian culture has done, if you like, for Europe and the West, especially. Um, But but obviously there is a a parting of ways in terms of, you know, at the center of it. Is there something supernatural? I mean, I would assume you would say even that not just the inspiration of those scriptures in that sense is supernatural, Ben, but even Tyndale's own working of them into the English language. God was behind that in some way that there is that all, all of this is, if you like, has 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 had God at work, um, mm. it's not just a happy accident yeah. that these, these scriptures uh, in English have, have uh, yeah. formed the bedrock of English culture and literature. As, as much
0: well. as he's inspired any artist. I mean, as, uh, as, as we know, uh, Tyndale invents words that we now use on a daily basis. Tyndale invented the word beautiful, <laughs> the word atonement, <laughs> the word loving kindness. Uh, he was a great, and if you read David Daniel's great biography of him, David Daniel was professor of English at University College London, a fine university, <laughs> where um, he, uh, he said that uh, David Daniel, of course, is someone who knows language. And if you read his great biography um, of, uh, of, of, uh, of, of, of Tyndale, you see the man was brilliant with language. If you read how he translates uh, Genesis chapter 3, the, the authorised version has the, the serpent saying to Eve, you know, if you touch the tree, you shall surely not die, says the serpent. And, uh, but Tyndale says, now if you touch the tree... Tush, you shall not die. <laughs> Serpent like voice, which is uh, it's the, the man was brilliant, but he was inspired in the way that any artist is inspired because we believe in a God who is gracious. And he inspires Da Vinci alongside Bach, alongside uh, Mozart, alongside Tyndale. I'm not expecting to get you converted in today's program, Melvin, but
1: I, I, I it is significant to me that that you've you've. You, you are at least very much not on the same page as some of the loudest voices in our culture have been recently, the, the Richard Dawkins, the New Atheists, who to some extent um, have very much downplayed or even poured scored on the Christian heritage and biblical culture of, of, of the UK. I mean, and, and you would very much like to see that reversed, even though you're not doing it in a sense with a, with a sort of Christian agenda as such.
2: Well as a scientist I respect Richard Dawkins, Uh, I'm not a scientist, he as a scientist is absolutely brilliant and a wonderful communicator. But the idea of uh, the dismissiveness of the atheistic point of view was why I, I spent quite a while, time in my life, writing uh, about the books, ch- about the Bible, uh, mm. about the impact of the Bible. Because I thought a lot of that would come out in, uh, in the 400th anniversary, and I wanted to put some, my hat in the ring to sort of counter it. Um, Without, uh, from a strange point of view, I think if a Christian had written it, 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 it would have uh, had a much more impact, but uh, I wrote it as I am. Mm. And it, uh, it, it said what Christianity has done, and when you examine it as I, again and, and again and again, it's, the benefits have been enormous. And the, and the, the bad side is also uh, is, is, uh, is something that you, one has to sort of worry about and take on board. Mm. But it's possible, I think. Unlike Ben, Ben doesn't uh, believe this at all. I think it's possible to take something and not everything. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and in that sense, you, you I mean, I've—I've I've met people who, while they don't hold the, the specific beliefs of Christianity, they, they would call themselves, in, culturally, they would say I, I'm Christian, you know. And and I'm guessing you are no stranger to going into a church building and enjoying what you can enjoy from that, Melvin.
2: Well, yes, I, I wouldn't call myself a Christian because I respect it too much. Right. I'm, I'm somebody who's fascinated wow. by and branded by Christianity, and I, go into, I love going into churches, particularly two sorts of churches, empty village churches, where people have been uh, often in this country for centuries, and you do feel, if you have any feelings at all, uh, 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 you feel this, that there is a mystery there which is, which is beyond reason, that, like the heart has its reasons that reason doesn't know. You feel what's going on there has its reasons that reason doesn't know. And I, I love the uh, sung even song in the, um, in, in the cathedrals. Uh, and I never miss a chance to go to it, to listen mm. to the choir singing in those places. And again, the power of music, uh, mm. which is something that uh, inhabits your mind in a way that even words don't do. Mm. Uh, it takes you somewhere that you can't describe, but you'd know it exists.
1: Mm. It's been wonderful having you both on the show today. Thank you very much for for joining me. Um, Ben, if people want more about Christian heritage, you've got a podcast, I believe, um, Mm. Christian Heritage London podcast. I assume you can find that wherever you get your podcast from. Indeed. Um, And
0: where where should people look if they want to book themselves into one of these fascinating walking tours? If you look on the website, ChristianHeritageLondon.org is the name of our website. And you'd be very welcome to come. We'd love to take people through these stories. Um, all the very best, Melvin. I, I know you've mm-hmm.
1: been um, talking up uh, William Tyndale for a few years now and uh, and I hope that, that it goes well as you continue to take his message. Um, I, I, in a way, um, this is, I guess, part of a bigger mission for you to, to just remind people of where they've been, what, what brought them to this place and not forget the, the incredible heritage of people like Tyndale and others who, who gave us the culture and life that we take for granted these days.
2: Exactly. I agree. That's what I'm trying to do, a small small pebble on the beach.
0: Well, thank you. Yeah, we're so grateful for you. Uh, Many of us have listened to you so many times, and many Christians, I'm sure, are very grateful for the fairness that you've unusually showed in our generation, um, speaking respectfully and sympathetically of Christianity. Yeah, thank you very much, Melvin. Thanks for being with us on the program today.
1: Thank you very much. That's, my uh, guess, Melvin Bragg, again, if you want to get hold of the book. It's published by SPCK, William Tyndale, A Very Brief History. Ben Virgo, thank you for being with me in studio
0: today. Thank you, Justin. For more episodes of the Christian Heritage London podcast and for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours and walks, please go to christianheritagelondon.org.